Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. We're live! Yes. 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 All right. Let me get the rest of the tech going here. So. My lighting. I'm really sorry, everybody. I apologize for the lighting. Let me... Uh, <laughs> Tools. Let me Tools. just start this off. So I actually, Matt and I ran a test uh, last week uh, wherein he ran the undersampled radio account and it worked flawlessly. It was amazing. So I, I think I've eliminated some more variables from why my system is always crashing. Ergo, I brought my laptop today uh, to run the UR account. Now, uh, nice. everything's good. Everything's cool. I turn it on. I set it up. My wireless is it? No, my wireless router is toast. So I'm not using. That's why screen's black. I'm not using. I'm just using the setup that I have been using. So just expect me to randomly drop out in the middle of this call. Okay. Um, but it's a good thing that we have Chris Jackson, Doctor Jackson. Does anybody call you CJ? No. I always thought no, that was a cool calls, nickname. No, my mum calls me Christopher when I've done something wrong. <laughs> Still. Still, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, we have uh, so <laughs> I won't start calling you CJ. But if you mess something up today, I will call you Christopher. So that's fine. Um, we have we have uh, Chris Jackson hosting Undersampled Radio today. This is episode thirty-one, everybody. Uh, so now that I've ruined the introduction for you, talk us in, man. Uh, yes, in my. Inaugural um, lead-in for Undersample Radio. I am honored to introduce Graham Gansel and Matt Hall. We are triangulated around the globe today um, to bring you more fun geo stuff in a highly professional manner. Is that correct? Christopher, you didn't say the name of the show. Oh, did I, did I not? <laughs> I'll say it again. Do you know what it is? <laughs> I did say undersampled radio. Oh, oh I did. Oh, I, I thought I did. Attention. Sorry, it was my fault. I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> See, I'll I like being again. a guest. Okay, go ahead. Hello, and welcome to Undersampled Radio, episode 31, with me, Chris Jackson from Imperial College, Graham Grunsel, who's down in uh, New Orleans, and Matt Hall, who is currently hiding out in Nova Scotia. Is that correct? It is, yeah, bang on. Nice. Hello, everyone. And I am I'm I'm here as the third the third leg of this well-oiled tripod. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the seediest thing anyone's ever said on this show. <laughs> Aren't tripods supposed to be stationary? Why do they need to be oiled? <laughs> Don't ask. Um, hey, I heard. There's got to be a reason. Wait, so Chris, are you you you're back in London? I am back in London, yes. I've been back in London. I was in Austin last time I spoke to you, which was in, I think, August last year. Um, so I've been basically in um, London since then, a couple of trips away. But yeah, back here, this is my glamorous office location in central London. So. Lovely. 
But I, I happen to know that you were in Bergen this week, I believe, till possibly yesterday, maybe? I was. I was in Bergen um, for a couple of meetings with sponsors and to visit the University of Bergen. So, yeah, that was really, really good fun. Oh, weren't you at the... Uh, the maybe I'm getting my dates mixed up, but were you not at that conference thing? No, I wasn't at the Winterkonferenzen because Rob Gawthorpe, the, the, the bane of you and I's life as PhD students, he organised the end of project meeting for the same day. So, yes. Was he no. your advisor? <laughs> yes, he was, yeah. Yes, I see. So, um, uh, yeah. I well, see. it sounds I, like I, I totally got the wrong end of the stick then. I was going to ask you all about that conference, but now I can't. No, you can ask Eric Larson. He, was, he ran this machine learning workshop at the Winterkonferenzen with Dimitris and Bezad, so they'll be able to talk to you a bit about that. Okay, we've got to get him on, Graham. Okay, see you, see you Chris. Great <laughs> 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 job, thanks for coming on. <laughs> thanks Hi. for having us on, Chris. Um, no, so it sounds like you're traveling all over the world. Um, and I want to mention something I don't know about yet. Uh, you're going to, it's like Beatles mania, man. It's Jackson mania. You're going to invade America. <laughs> I am. You need something good there, right, at the moment. That's something <laughs> well, good. That, that something good isn't coming. I'm coming we, instead. <laughs> something something non-awful. <laughs> exactly. Where are you yeah. going? Well, I am. Uh, I won the Thompson Distinguished Lecturer Award from the Geological Society of America, so the GSA. Um, so thank you. Yeah, um, I was very pleased to hear about that and surprised. Um, and that. Um, Award uh, allows me to travel for up to a month around the US um, giving lectures in different institutions. So they can be universities or they can be professional geological geoscience organizations. Um, so yeah, I'm flying into uh, Ohio from London, which might be a bit of a shock. Um, <laughs> And then I go to Rutgers University, New Jersey, then down to Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma. And then I rapidly leave Oklahoma to fly to Hawaii. Yes. <laughs> where I've never, ever been. So I'm very, very excited about that. And then a few days in Hawaii giving a talk and then to Colorado School of Mines uh, for a few days before then flying um, back to London. So that's just the first leg of the tour, which starts on the uh, fly out on the 28th of January. Um, so the, there is a link in our show notes, which will be linked in the description of this thing, uh, where you can go see the whole tour. You can get the description and get the dates and times. And I'm too lazy to click that link right now. So why don't you tell me what dates you're going to be in Hawaii? Oh, uh, Hawaii, I, I'm giving the talk on the 6th of February. Um, but I'm actually flying into Hawaii on, effectively, I think I get there on the evening of the 4th and eventually depart on the evening of the 8th. So yeah, the talk will be on the 6th. So yeah, four days in Hawaii as opposed to four days in New Jersey. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> the reason I ask is I'm actually going to Hawaii too, but it'll be after your talk, unfortunately. Oh, okay. Because the one thing I want to do on my Hawaiian vacation is go listen to geology professors talk about rock. <laughs> I was, you know what I really want to do in Hawaii is go to, I have some friends who have some friends that are the people that put on the silver suits and get to lava samples. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I want to do on vacation, you know what I mean? No, I, I'd like to do that. I'm not sure 
what the GSA's insurance policy covers. <laughs> I might just take a quick squiz of that before I. <laughs> yeah, no, it's going to be it's going to be really cool to go to all those different places, meet different people. Um, yeah, I'm still trying to work out what I'm going to talk about in all the locations because GSA sort of ask you to um, offer a range of talks, and then the institution gets to um, decide which of those talks best suits their faculty. Um, so yeah. So what are you going to talk about? What, what uh, highlights well, do you have so far? Um, yeah, cool. Um, I have uh, got a talk about three um, D seismic reflection data and what benefits it's brought us in terms of understanding basin analysis. That is <laughs> For those of you who are watching, you will see what I'm seeing. I'm sorry. <laughs> it started. Craven. It started working again. He's only mocking me because I'm the person on earth who's least likely to be able to grow a beard. So <laughs> I think it's I think he knows that. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry. If you so um if you if you guys don't watch this show on YouTube, you so <laughs> yeah. I interrupted. Yes, okay. So Basin's research. <laughs> beards. Yeah, sorry. So, uh, your beards. <laughs> well, lack there. No, we're um. Yeah, but, but lack of beards <laughs> right. in the cold weather. <laughs> I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna give a talk about 3D seismic data, looking at um, how 3D seismic data was referred to as a geological Hubble by Joe Cartwright and Mads Husser in 2002 and they were trying to make the point that like the Hubble telescope 3D seismic data was going to be able to let us effectively look at the insides of the earth in great resolution over great areas so and it was at the time when academic access to 3D seismic data was really flourishing so we were able to get those type of data to then ask Different questions and harder questions, whereas previously those data had been the reserve of uh, reserve of the oil company. So there's a talk about since 2002 what we've learnt by using this tool. In essence, stuff we would never, perhaps, ever have known if we didn't get academic access to that tool. Um, what kind of angle are you going to approach that thing? But you know, I, I remember hearing the uh, the depth migration has solved the problem of oil exploration. Yeah, I mean, partly it's by putting reflections back in the right place in the Earth's subsurface. So it's partly that we have more confidence in the analysis. And the other thing is actually there's stuff we couldn't really even see before, or we couldn't correlate from 2D lines to 2D lines. So we didn't know, let's just say, most simply the strike extent of structures or the complexity of normal faults or the fabrics that were apparent in mass transport complexes and deep marine deposits. So. You know, there's just some real geological richness that we've managed to bring to our interpretations as a function of these data, beyond the geophysical benefits, shall I say. Yeah. Well, it's expert. I think that it's going to be cool to hear the geological perspective on all of the technical and seismic-y related stuff. Um, yeah, I, yeah. Sorry, I was just going to ask if, uh, it, like, if some other institutions uh, selected other talks because you said there was, a, there was a menu. Yeah, so there's a couple of other talks. There's one about how normal faults grow. So there's a talk about normal fault kinematics and lots of details about um, earthquake hazards associated with how we understand faults growing. Um, there's a talk which I really enjoy giving, which I always find very exciting. It's about using seismic reflection data to understand igneous geology. 
So using seismic oh. reflection data to image uh, dikes and sills and volcanoes, cool. so ancient buried systems, and looking at how we try and track ancient magma movements in the Earth's crust using these types of data. So um, it's one of the talks when I've given it before, people have in their mind what 3D seismic data is used for, and it's typically finding oil and gas. And then you show people you can look at lots of other things in the Earth, and oftentimes people get so far in understanding bases, but they just think that, you know, these igneous rocks don't really have a, you know, they don't lend themselves to being imaged with seismic data, but they totally do because of their physical properties. So we can see some amazing things. Do you have some images you're going to share in the talk? Yeah, in fact, I'm happy to post the talks via Undersampled Radio, via the show notes for people to look at. I've posted them on Twitter before, because I've given variants on these talks in different places, and I've posted um, links to my talks. I'm happy to share them with people. Cool. Um, yeah. I did I did an imaging project, sub-basalt imaging project uh, a few years ago, which was absolutely fascinating. Um, the complexity involved in eliminating that gigantic refractor, mm. uh, which is a thick basalt layer, um, was very, very tough and uh, also very exciting. So we got, we got um, some resolution below the basalt layer, but what we got mostly was a really cool looking picture of, of the extents of the basalt, which was pretty fascinating. Exactly. I mean, and for geologists, that's what they kind of get off on is the, is, you know, the, the lack of finding oil and gas problem is somebody else's for the academics oftentimes, right? Because there's always an upside to what you see as you're trying to image below that, uh, that igneous rock layer, and there's still something for us to learn there as well. You know, we do all these modeling experiments where we insert things like salts or uh, hard things, uh, fast rocks, um, to determine the accuracy and the efficiency of our whatever, for example, migration algorithms. Um, and so you do things like stick basically a basalt dike inside of a sedimentary block of different layered what have you's. Um, and I, I've never been able, I've never seen any data where you get to look at that in the real world, like, you know, see some sort of contained, I mean, salt for sure, but never with igneous. Yeah. So, I, I mean, want some pictures. Yeah, I mean, we've got lots of pictures. So I work with um, uh, very closely with uh, Craig McGee, who's a research fellow here at Imperial. And it was interesting because he came from a much more field-based igneous geology, Arnhemurka, Northwest Scotland, field-based kind of classic background with structural mapping. And taking all of those understandings derived from the field and then trying to look for evidence of that in the seismic data. And also what seismic data allows you to do is look behind the outcrop, right? I mean, that's the magic of it is all those times you're in the field pining to see just behind or just around the corner and there is no corner or there's barbed wire, there's a fence, right? You can't get around there. But with seismic data, we lose in resolution, oftentimes vertically and horizontally, we, we, we gain in the aerial extent and the depth extent of those data. So, I, you know, when we started working together, it was, in, it was eye-opening for both of us to see um, how those two different approaches to understanding this geology could complement each other. Yeah, nice. Do, have there been any seismic acquisitions expressly for imaging any of those sorts of features that you know of? Presumably research. Yeah, um, not really. I mean, most times, like Graham referred to, the imaging effort is put into trying to get below them, right? So hmm. 
you know, you have no problem getting the energy into the rocks above them. It's getting the energy down through those piles and that big refractor, like you say, into the rocks below. Um, so, no, I don't think so. I'm not too sure whether even scientific agencies would want to put money into, you know, what would we learn from better imaging the upper surface of a lava flow off the right. North Atlantic, you know? It, it, it might not be might not be that powerful. I've got one. I've got one. Well, I, I, can't, I, mean, I think there's the BGS has some lines in the Rockall Trough, I guess, those yep. were sort of research-based. Uh, yeah, they're know, spectacular. Right across that basin, across yeah. the complexes yeah yeah they're really spectacular and you know when they get lost at data as well you start to get better sub basalt imaging the sub intrusion imaging as well um so yeah there's there's those data which were collected for all exploration still even the oga um slash bgs data um yeah so we we can we can use those data for academic means still mm. those are publicly available some of that too. So the one experiment that I have wanted to run since I did this a few years ago, I was involved with a gold exploration deal, and we were out there in the field with our construction crew with the big backhoes and everything looking for gold-bearing quartz veins. And wouldn't it be cool, and I don't know, maybe it's been done, uh, to shoot some shallow, you know, ultra-high frequency from a seismic perspective data to look for quartz veins in the... Uh, shallower than uh, say 200 feet realm there are some data sets where seismic reflection data have been used high frequencies to look for mineral deposits I'm not sure whether it's quartz veins but certainly I think copper and things and also I've seen seismic reflection data where they're actually imaging the, sh the mine shaft networks yeah so I can have a dig around for that and then post it on the show notes if that's useful but I've seen some really spectacular papers showing uh, veins being imaged big loads Very cool very cool. Yeah. Um, so speaking of courses, Matt, you have a course note here, an additional course coming up. Uh, oh yeah, right about the um, about the communicating geoscience in the twenty first century, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, yeah, well, well it'll be really interesting to see what that course involves. <laughs> Um, so we were asked, uh, Graham and I and Evan, if we'd like to put together uh, a day or something for um, the, so that's sort of the Canadian um, Petroleum Geology Society um, that has an education week in the spring. It's called Spring Forward, I think, this year. And um, it's the week before the Geo Convention. Uh, which is the sort of big combined Canadian geoscience convention, mostly petroleum focused, but not exclusively. And um, and so we, we were sort of intrigued enough to say, yeah, okay. Uh, and, I, and I think the idea was to sort of get at, you know, alternative ways of publishing, uh, blogging, podcasting, social media, and to try and sort of, uh, I don't know, educate people, encourage people to get involved and participate and explore some of these new avenues of sharing research or finding um, interesting stuff, interesting people um, and sort of broadening their networks, but in a, you know, rich, meaningful way um, uh, sort of globally. And I think it's especially sort of relevant today with the, you know, the industry and certain amount of turmoil, um, a lot of people you know, looking to sort of stay connected while perhaps they're between jobs or, or even, I don't know, going back to school, doing other things. 
um, looking for ways to sort of stay connected and still be relevant and still keep learning outside of a corporate environment or they're, you know, if they're graduating and still looking for work outside of an academic environment. So, um, so yeah, I, you know, I, I think we're going to try and minimize the uh, course-like environment and maximize the sort of conversation uh, and try and kind of get people together in smaller groups to share their experiences on social media or with social media and talk about what possible future is for scientific communication given all of these new tools and these new modes of interacting. Um, so I'm hoping that we get a few like trying to get the sort of YouTube celebrity Dr. Chris, <laughs> Chris Harrison is uh, in Calgary along. Um, there's uh, Rowan Cockett and his group, you know, really into uh, rich documents, uh, new media. Um, they've got a very, very interesting, exciting version of the SEG Distinguished Lecture Tour happening this year with, um, uh, oh, what's his name, Doug Oldenburg is giving that course, but they've attached to it a lot of interactive content um, driven by their SIMPEG simulation. Uh, tool um, and then of course we've got all the sort of blogging and podcasting stuff to uh, try and yeah have some fun with as well so, <clears throat> so I think it's gonna be a really awesome day but I don't know what it's gonna involve yet <laughs> it's gonna involve a lot of really awesome people talking about a lot of really awesome media formats and communication and then there'll be me talking about fake beards on Google Hangouts <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Matt. Can I ask you a question? Mm, please. What's your What's your sense of What's your sense of uh, what people might be saying about trying to use all these alternative formats and the value of them? The reason I ask is because often, if you run a course like that, these sort of people are going to turn up are the people who are wanting to engage in that, and you're not going to get the cynics turning up who say, "Right, I'm over here with my belief, mm. and I, you know, I'm here to kind of hear what you've got to say." I'm, I'm and I'm thinking, you know. Partly about something to do about open access publishing. Now, you get all those people who want the same thing to happen in a the room. They're all going to want to say the same thing, and they all want it to happen, right? But I mean, yeah. what's your what what what's your sense about the the people who are going to turn up, and then you know what their view might be? Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, it, you're right. You tend to attract the people who've already you know you're preaching to the choir kind of thing. Um, and I think there's a role there to play with two right because a lot of people are you know curious nervous about getting involved especially if they've got a corporate employer um i've talked to a lot of people about blogging where they're like yeah i don't you know no one's going to be interested in what i've got to say a lot of the same sort of things that people say when you say hey why don't you give a talk on this at the next convention or whatever um so it's so I'm, I'm okay talking to the maybe not the choir but the people who want to be in the choir um but and I, so I'm planning to invite some people who perhaps are going to be more cynical slash skeptical. So, for example, the publishers of the uh, technical magazines and journals that are based in Calgary, who basically have you know traditional publishing models right now and feel the um, fear of losing revenue um, by making them open access or what have you. Um, the other sector of the community that I'm interested in involving um, is the sort of uh, marketing slash PR folks from service companies and 
maybe even operated companies. Uh, I think it could be really interesting because they have a completely different approach to social media, right? Yeah. And several yeah. of them have tried blogging, and and I think in general, traditional academic publishers uh, like at the University of Calgary, say U of A. Um, yeah, I hadn't really thought about how we could get people who may be more invested. We should look and see like who's published in Nature lately and science. Yeah, and I, get, get I guess I'm wondering from a, at least from an academic perspective, you know, there's a kind of there's still perhaps a view of the some nobility in the in the in the struggle, you know, without all these fancy bells and whistles and yeah. you know, it should all be about, you know, the nature paper or the science paper and Yeah. You know, and yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the, I mean, I, I, I kind of moved. I didn't know. I didn't know where I came from with this, but, but I just like talking to people and hearing from people. So I've kind of not using it as a professional kind of tool so much as it's just a way of connecting with people. But there's certainly a bunch of the academic people who may be thinking, oh, if it's really good, it should happen anyway. You know, people should know about this anyway. But that's not what life's like, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, or at least it's slow if it, if that's the yeah. only way yeah. it happens. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, there's there's a lot of discomfort. Like I, I, I was uh, John Tennant, uh, proto hedgehog, tweeted something this morning about his his late. I guess so. He's a people who don't know him. He's at Imperial, or he was at Imperial. So I guess uh, um, Chris knows him probably quite well. Um, and he's pretty active on social media, and quite outspoken and vocal about open access. Uh, and he's a, he's, a, he's a paleontologist. Um, I guess his latest thing was he's put a thing on his website that says he charges ten thousand pounds for peer reviews. <laughs> so, so the I idea is to, to basically say and and by accept and essentially he's saying to the publisher, when I accept a peer review, you accept this term of my engagement, mm. and it's on my website for all to see, kind of thing, and of course. They don't know about this and aren't going to pay him for peer reviews. But um, he's making an interesting point because publishers essentially have a bunch of sort of implicit terms that you're signing up to when you get involved in the academic publishing process. And um, I can't remember where, where on earth I was going with that little uh, thing. But I mean, oh, yeah, right. The thing that he uh, also tweeted along with it was this platform that I can't remember the name of, but it's in the show notes. For publishing Publons. your peer reviews what was yeah, it Publons, yeah 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 so basically your peer reviews are up there against your name which i think is great I, you can see all the papers he's he's reviewed and read his review and i and i'm super open about my reviews and always have done them um with my name on them and uh you know i'm totally but 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 even I felt a little bit like wow would I have got my reviews would I put them online? Um, well, that ship no. has sailed, Matt. I mean, I yeah. mean, I mean, not any publons, but EGU Solid Earth Journal, which started about a year ago, um, their whole MO was that the um, you almost crowdsourced a review from invited people, but then there was a live discussion rather than a kind of classic dark room, write a review, send it back. Mm. It was a discussion online. Um, and then all of that discussion was published along with the paper. And I think it's amazing yeah. because cool. a paper looks like a done deal. Yeah. And it looks like everybody, including the referees, you know, including the people who reviewed it, 
all sign up to this being legit, but actually behind the scenes, there's been a massive dust up about like, you know, all of this richness that is lost in the review process because we don't publish the reviews at the same time. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's awesome. So, um, I, and I don't know that, you know, just like EGU and AGU seem to be particularly enlightened organizations. Um, I don't know that the other, you know, the incumbent publishing uh, community in, at least in petroleum geoscience, are getting together and having these conversations or are even aware of some of these new patterns. They are, and I had a fairly tense discussion last week with a major professional geoscience organization about one of their journals and the charges they were making for open access, extra color, fig or color figures and extra pages. Okay. And I was trying to communicate to them that there was this new world that's happening and maybe they could be at the vanguard of looking at new publishing models and, you know, the mere fact that they were still sending 7% of their subscribers a hard copy, why not just cam the hard copy and reduce the printing? You know, there's lots of things like that that are going on that will be interesting, I think, in the future. Yeah. and. But, you know, so I, like the one thing I, I, I feel like I would say that I feel like perhaps what, well, you know, he's not here to speak up for himself, but I mean, um, that I think people like John can forget a little bit is that there's a legitimate fear that they will lose revenue. And on, one, on the one, you know, and that, I mean, that's one thing when you're talking about Elsevier, you know, multi-billion dollar company, and another thing when you're talking about SEG and APG, yeah. aren't multi-billion billion dollar companies. Um, because we want those things to survive, I think, on the whole. Like, maybe we maybe we don't, but I mean, um, I I think SEG has got a role to play or something in, in that. There's a role there to be played. <laughs> if SEG doesn't modernize, then maybe it's not them that should be playing it, but there's a role there to be played. And, um, and so we, I think, as the open access community, have to get better at sort of, you know, making the argument in terms that these people understand and that address those fears yeah. about this new model, that it's not just a massive giveaway, which is otherwise what it can look like. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've again, recently we've had discussions with a professional geoscience organization about a new journal. And the first response that came back from the people who were sort of assessing that was, the main concern was this is one of their main revenue generating streams. Will your proposal impact that? You know, that's the first sort of thing. And it's understandable. And so we do, it can't, the, the cost resides somewhere. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think, you know, uh, present company accepted, it's easy for academics to forget that, that there are other people in the community who aren't paid expressly to progress the machine of, of, of research, right? I mean, it, it, me spending a day reviewing a paper is a completely different proposition from John Tennant spending a day reviewing a paper. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. You know, that's thousands of dollars of lost revenue for me. So yeah. it's, it, it, you know, and, and so, I mean, I, I think these are really uh, important conversations and it's a shame that they come down to money at some point, but, but that's just sort of reality, I think. So SEG is listening right now. <clears throat> Pitch it to him. Where does the money come from? Yeah, well, I'll just say briefly because I've I've written blog posts and stuff about this, and then I'll shut up. But um, for me, it's about recognizing the currency of relevance and like 
it's a little bit of a gamble but i'm sort of saying in order to still be around it's not that you have to make money like this it's that you have to be relevant and awesome like that is the thing that guarantees you stick around and so for me there's a mind shift change there that has to happen um i don't know what do you, what, what do you think chris what do you say about these revenue concerns uh, um well some of the um yeah let, well let's put it this way i mean some of these professional organizations are charities or have charitable status at least in the uk therefore they're not there to make a profit census stricto almost you know they're there to serve the professional needs of their membership or the, the needs of their membership so and okay you know you'll never be running at zero you'll always be wanting to bring in money to make sure you can have initiatives and give that money away in grants or new initiatives so that's sort of fine um it is i guess for example one thing that concerns me this whole idea of where the money is the money's here or it's there you know there was a discussion last year on the geotectonics mailing list about the GSA who are making geology and GSA bulletin, I think, both of them open access fully, which sounds brilliant until you realize that there is a cost to publish in there then. So the cost then shifts to the author. So the author, if you want to publish in there, there's a, not just for OA, it seemed like, it seemed like it was actually for, you know, there was going to be a cost, which I think somebody described it to me as a Victorian publishing model, right? The, only the wealthy will get to publish because, if you can't afford to write, you know, to put it in there, you will never get it in. Um, so what happens there? You know, I mean, I'm not even sure. But the money, you know, the money then comes from us, but rather than us subscribing to the journal. Mm -hmm. um, well, then the argument though is that that this is where it starts getting really uncomfortable for publishers because I think the argument that a lot of academics make is there's a really great blog post by C. Titus Brown this week about. Uh, about this is that well maybe we don't need journals like why why are there professional editors and so on putting these things together why are we you know why is that a thing why not just have people blog it and you know yeah but the problem the the the, the, the fight back against that is you know by reading it in a journal you believe there's a there's a there's a stamp of approval if not by the journal but by the review process that the journal has facilitated okay so I don't want to, you know, I don't want to read somebody's blog post because in case it's just some random person's just decided to write a blog post, how do I know that's a bit more relevant? And I, okay, you could read all of the blog posts in the world and all of the journal articles and then make up your own mind which one was good or bad. But I think we're using the journal system as a way of filtering out initially. I, I, I don't, I'm not defending it still by saying that. I still think there's a modernization that could happen. Um, but it's perhaps not as clear cut as maybe some people like John, who I've been talking to a lot about this recently, as some people make out, which is why I sort of asked you the question about this kind of echo chamber thing. You know, if you, you mm. run this workshop and a load of people are going to saying, hey, Matt, this is great. You're brilliant. You know, what about the other side of things? What are they going to say? What are their concerns? You've got to get, you've got to fight those people rather than keep them to construct your own thing, I think, or engage mm. with those people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and like, like, like you've alluded to a couple of times just now, um, the risk is that by, uh, it, you know, if all you have, I guess, is one system or your system is relatively inflexible or whatever, then you end up potentially uh, overemphasizing the opinions and the means of one segment of the sort of commu yeah. scientific community and excluding and blocking out other segments. That, and that, that would obviously be disastrous. But maybe, so maybe it is just a 
has to be a multifaceted landscape where some people are paying three thousand dollars to get their papers um, produced in a highly you know with nice typesetting and beautiful figures like nature geoscience has um, and others are writing blog posts that they hope get peer-reviewed in in the open on their blog yeah. by commenters or whatever and yeah, yeah. you know I, um, I mean, I guess that's kind of just what we have now, but um, it, it feels if the landscape doesn't feel like you say they're not equal. Like those, the the results of those two bits of research right now aren't aren't equally seen by everybody. Yeah. 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 Mm, it's it's a fascinating time to be a scientist. I think it's a really interesting time yeah. to be like seeing all this unfold. So let's start a Slack chat, a peer review, a Slack instance, <clears throat> uh, segmented by a uh, discipline. Does yeah, that, well, that's does that accomplish your aims? Like, has been, uh, there's been peer review on our Slack channel, right? Yeah. Well, an effective peer review um, and timely as well. Like in less than 24 hours, usually you can have five or six opinions about pretty much anything. What What is that Slack channel, Matt? <laughs> Uh, what oh software underground? Don't, isn't that in our head, in the head of the show anymore? It used to be in the jingle or whatever. Yeah, but we haven't been, we haven't been pushing it as hard as no. we used to. Yeah, yeah. So HTTP swung dot rocks. If you want to sign up, it's um, basically a bunch of people who are into reviewing papers, technology, <laughs> and reviewing papers for each other. So you can get that done uh, on software underground for free. Yeah. <clears throat> Very nice. I mean, there's large amounts of money changing hands every day in in that channel. Oh, is I have I, <laughs> so, I, so far I haven't been privy to that side of the. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right. There isn't any of that. What about it's posters? All, it's all just silliness. Can we talk uh, about posters? Posters. Uh, <laughs> did I write that down? Yeah, I see. I see that now. Are you a poster uh, fan? I am a big poster fan. Um, ah, where's this come from? Um, this the, again talking about imbalances and methods of communicating science. I guess is the segue between what we just talked about. And what we, what this is about is how we view at conferences um, a poster versus a talk, or to go beyond that matters the stuff you were blogging about years ago about why we have conferences and why we have sessions at conferences with a formal delivery of the material full stop, right, you know, and this is all spawned out the fact I've had a fairly a numerous discussions, debates with people who view talks at conferences as being more prestigious than posters or any other form of just sitting in a bar and talking to somebody about their science over a laptop, right, which is another way, let's be honest, and it's less passive, doing it with booze is way more fun. Um, you know, you go to SEG or you go to one of these conferences in this big vacuous hall for 600 people. There's actually 10 people in there. It's dark. You're at the start of the session. You give a talk. You make a mess of it. Nobody remembers you apart from the guy who screwed up. And by the time it's the coffee hour, everybody's dashing out the door, right? I would argue a 10-minute chat with somebody over a poster, even if you stood there for three hours, I have personally always gained a lot more from that. So I guess I was... You know, 
because partly I put that in the show notes just to say that and to try and get some input from you guys or from anybody else about what their view is about posters and talks and the passivity. You know, how passive a talk is. I mean, you know, somebody does something two years ago, they come and stand there for 15 minutes and you've read the paper already and then they just tell you about it and you've paid like $1,000 to go and do that. It's really weird, right? Yeah. Well, what do you think of posters, Graham, and talks? Well, I like the uh, I like the poster review <clears throat> model. So let's do our sort of peer review action in live person. So you have to pay this big upfront fee to go to a conference. Why not read the look at the poster ahead of time online, or see some snapshot or an abstract or something like that? Come prepared with questions, and more than just having a discussion with the author, uh, have a system to submit um, comments, uh, you know, sort of persistent comments in, in some fashion. So um, write a review on on whatever online system they have or, or submit some handwritten note or something like that. Um, as Chris says, there is a huge benefit to the sort of nonlinear creativity that occurs when you're just chatting with someone rather than sitting in your office reading the paper or falling asleep halfway in a dark room <laughs> listening to them talk about the paper. I mean, I, I was wondering what a conference would look like that was only posters. Yeah. I think that would be awesome. And I think it would be especially relevant to have some sort of, like I say, categorized, saved, not necessarily public, but public would be better. Uh, review system at a poster only or a discussion only conference or you know something like that. Yeah, I think if I mean if you, yeah, you just I mean, and partly it's a cultural shift, right? It's kind of this idea that you know I go to a conference, I'm going to spend some time sitting in a dark room, I'm going to spend some time at the posters. If there were no dark rooms, would people still go? Would they pay to go? Would they, you know? Would they be prepared to be on their feet for six hours a day walking around? You know how? I think it sounds very exciting to think what a conference would be like where they only had um, posters as the medium of communication or they only had breakout rooms or they you know they you know the Pico system at EGU where they have the digital screens so you can basically bring up your PowerPoints on digital screens that are sort of positioned around the conference venue so it's a very dynamic person you meet them in the coffee bar but you drag them over to a free terminal and you show them something on there and some people passing by might come in you know so it's a bit more a bit less structured and probably scary because of it, but maybe you know a bit more uh, in, you know exciting in that respect. Yeah, that sounds really cool. I like um, I like the idea of sort of pop up uh, talks. I, I remember at the conference in London once had they had um, author office hours, where it's like the, you knew where the author was going to be for an hour or two um, in, in the, during the day, so they could tell you that in their talk and you could go find them, track them down. Uh, I thought that was really nice. Uh, you know, I, I feel like great conferences probably combine a lot of a lot of these things. Um, you know, again, there are, I can see the Pico thing being really difficult for somebody who's not very self-confident or doesn't know a lot of people, maybe doesn't need to help getting conversations started. Uh, the posters, where people wander up and maybe a bit more accessible like that. Um, you know, 
there are there are good ways and bad ways to do posters i think they're often really downplayed at seg they're in a weird place often like out of the way um yeah. you have to be really lucky to catch um authors there or pay a lot of attention to the huge there's so many of them that it's you know just quite hard to coordinate where do i have to be when they're only 10 minutes long or whatever um you know apps and things could totally help with that having multiple poster presentations could help with that there's no feedback mechanism i think that would be cool i think you should be allowed to take photos of stuff like posters um or at least it should be up to the authors uh, and they should be able to be very clear about uh, I think there should probably be fewer of them, and yeah, I, you know, I, I perhaps because I'm a bit of a fiddler, I I spend way too long making posters, so I've never really enjoyed that process because it's so labor intensive. Um, so, what about having a having a posters only conference or whatever, something like that, graded by its uh, the product's completeness, if you want to call it a product, right? So at one end of the room, you have, I'm just soliciting ideas for a new uh, topic, oh, or, yeah. and the, mm. the other end, you have uh, something that's already been published. Um, mm. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Yeah, like um, yeah. sketches. Yeah, a whiteboard poster. Yeah, yeah. I thought the. Um, Sorry about that. I thought the uh, the e-posters at EAGE that I saw last year were awful. Like they were basically a room full of big screens where you had to go in as the sort of consumer, as it were, and people would present to them. But if you missed those, you could go look at the posters. But you had to like scroll through them, so there was none of that kind of just catching, like you know just being able to scan a bunch of things and kind of get the overview. And then the sort of way to go through it was to sort of play them and they would go through bits of the poster. The people had had to basically use this very restrictive template to basically make a PowerPoint. <laughs> so that it, went, it went through the poster in slides. <laughs> this is really weird. So there's like a talk, but there's nobody here to give the talk. <laughs> horrible format of this sort of weird digital mistake. So I hope those don't come but I think I think, Matt, I think that's probably when you've got a piece of technology, right, and you've just got it for Christmas and unwrapped it, and then you think, yep. ooh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I hate to think that they've presumably bought this, like, e-poster software from, oh, dear. Anyway, there's always going to be missteps. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my point, I mean, the whole thing about the posters is like, this is not to say that standing up in a room and talking to other human beings it's not a great training thing for all of us, right? I still enjoy doing it, and the students mm. massively benefit from that mode of communication. It's just <clears throat> this was all partly inspired by BSRG in Cambridge, where I think the conveners did a, a really good job to professionalize and give the posters much more breathing space mm. in the overall two-day program. But it came at the cost of some oral presentations, and there was a bit of disquiet about the fact that, oh, oh I've only got a poster. Right. And I was incandescent with rage at that notion that I've only got. And I think it was compounded by the fact that some supervisors were like, oh, my student only got a post. And I was like, what message is that sending to young scientists to go, oh, yeah, they're basically judging your stuff and they've given it a poster, so they've given it the thumbs down. I mean, yeah, yeah. professionally, we have a duty to try and make it comparable. Is that where it's come from, do you think? It's basically just like 
it's much easier to accommodate lots of posters because you just need more space. Whereas the, your talk schedule is full, so so people got rejected into posters. Is that where that's come? Because where is that, that dynamic coming from? That that is that's the that's the perception. You are. That's the perception. That is yeah. that is the that is the complete perception. And in fact, there was yeah. a Twitter exchange last year <clears throat> with some people who were saying, "Oh, maybe in your community it's different, but in our community, a poster is seen as a second place prize to a talk." And I was just, yeah. What is that saying to the sixty percent of people who have posters? <laughs> yeah, right. No, it's really, it's yeah. really interesting. I mean, I think, I, I think, I think we need more modalities like these, you know. And it, unfortunately, that comes at potentially at the price. You know, you were sort of talking earlier about well, my conversation in the bar was more productive than my talk. Um, you know, which I think is totally legit. Like that's 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 real, but you don't get something to write on your CV out of the chat at the bar. And, and so these other things like outmetrics, I guess, um, need to recognize, like, I, like, there's no clear way, I don't think to recognize sort of active participation, for example, you know, bringing awesome ideas, starting conversations, being a, uh, you know, even being a great reviewer is sort of barely, um, barely pokes its head above the sort of um, yeah so uh, you know maybe we just need to get better at all of that yeah hey chris last time we had you on the show we talked about the unconference that you were going to be holding oh, yeah, how'd it go yeah. i had a kid between that conversation and this one <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah this kid just Wait. turned up out of my wife. <laughs> what on earth? Yes. Yeah, like, you know, one day it wasn't there, the next day it was. And um, now, so we never, partly because of my business, but also because um, the people I was going to have it with were sort of like having this unconference with, we're moving around a bit. Um, we're planning it for later this year. The good thing is, I think one thing we talked about was, I think Matt, you mentioned, you know, almost with these on-conferences is almost to still have a target to try and crystallize the meeting around, you know, and we have got that now. So we've been invited to write a major review paper, which is a perspectives paper. So it's really exciting, right? It's not like tell us about all the old stuff. Right. The editor has contacted us and said, can you write a review paper about a bit of a review of the old stuff, but what that means in terms of unanswered questions in the area of rift tectonics and plate okay. breakup. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really cool, right? Because that means um, we now have a kind of purpose and we can be a bit more imaginative in terms of what we're talking about, a bit more free in what we speak about. So yeah, we actually have that now. Will, will you connect, will the paper be a kind of prelude to the meeting or will you connect them somehow and actually? Yeah, we'll, we'll try it. What we'll try and do is I'll try and get people to solicit you know, give me ideas around the paper framework I'll put together. And then when we're in that room for probably two days and we're going to probably get like one of these like meeting cubes in Trafalgar Square in London and sort of have a bit there. And then we might go down by the Thames and go to the Royal Festival Hall and have a breakout there and, you know, walk around London Bridge. So I've got some ideas of actually trying to go to different coffee houses and, you know, there's going to be maybe six of us like and just basically write the paper in a, on, on foot almost rather than in a room yeah yeah um, yeah yeah so okay so the um so the paper will actually be a product of the sort of unconference style meeting yeah right? like a white paper yeah, coming yeah. out of it but it'll be published and yeah Fantastic. so that sounds awesome and uh <clears throat> how do we get an invite 
<laughs> How do you get an invite? Oh, um, you have to put more fight, more beards on Google Hangouts. I see. I see. It's <laughs> working on plate tectonics. I see. Um, we've had, and speaking of uh, not plate tectonics, we've had a, a listener ask a question or make a suggestion here again, which is lovely, and I would love to see this happen, as I'm sure Matt would, um, have an, a conference that's this semi-unconference style, you know, with this posters, interactive demos, he suggests, on uh, geo stuffs and machine learning. So how do we incorporate, see the, how do we incorporate interactive demos into the conference framework, and are we already doing that with things like that Agile Hackathon? Is that good enough? Sorry, I'm just about to cough. <coughs> Sorry about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, that's the thing that blows me away about SciPy, I guess, is how people stand up and they basically just plug their laptop in. And even in a lightning talk, they're doing a demo. And many of these, these demos, so the lightning talks are five minutes. And they elicit spontaneous applause from the audience, which I've, ne I've never experienced that in a geoscience conference. Um, there's no opportunity to, to knock people's socks off because you have to do a PowerPoint. It has to be uploaded kind of 24 hours in advance and all the rest of it. You don't, we don't even have two projectors anymore. I mean, like the whole thing's completely retrograde. And, um, and, and so all these opportunities for that kind of surprising awesomeness have been sort of sucked out. So I, I think you, you basically just relax a bit about, but I mean, and all of that's done to sort of eliminate the uh, uncertainty around, you know, faffing about with people plugging their laptops in and it not working and all of that. If you could just let go of that a little bit, because it's not that big a deal, you know, it just means being a little bit prepared and having some adapters and having a backup plan and being able to dance a bit, it's no big deal. Um, it, it, it just works out. People get on with it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, fantastic. The, the trouble is, I, I love face-to-face -face meetings. The pro the fundamentally, it's just really hard to get a lot of people together when you're talking about a room or whatever because it costs loads and loads of money to travel around, and you have to plan way in advance. I mean, just one thing, one thing about the sci-fi community, from what I've read from the, what you've reported, I mean, culturally, they're a very different beast to, for example, an AAPG audience. I can't imagine anybody spontaneously standing up in Houston next, in a few months' time, applauding a great piece of work, right? Do you know what I mean? It's like... I dare you. <laughs> I dare you. I'm going to get shot by the security team. What do you think would happen if you did? Just, like, really start... You know what? Guys, guys, come yeah. on. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean. I, I, that's why I kind of that's that's what I kind of miss. I guess is some of the dynamic excitement. It seems like there are in other communities, and it sounds like in the computing, data analytics. You know that that sort of maybe I don't know. Dare I say a community which has probably got a younger median, sort of a younger age, of you know the communities are is younger. Maybe there's that freedom and that sort of you know, more radical sort of approach to doing things, whereas, yeah, geoscience, you've seen the curves and the demographics, I, you know, I don't know. Do we take ourselves too seriously? Because actually, when I think about like the geekiest people I, I know, many of them are old geezers, and they're just as cheeky and irreverent, and, you know, they love mucking about, 
and I, and I, like geos muck about too, but not with their work. Muck about on field trips and you know lark around in the pub and stuff. But we don't muck about with our work much. Much. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm exaggerating. Yeah. Is that right? Maybe just more conservative because if from the oil side of things, maybe it's just a more conservative breed of people. I don't know. I mean, but it's just yeah, like you say, I can't imagine. You know, the 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 conferences, the geo oil ones especially, are very regimented. The industry focused ones are very sort of classic format. It feels like we could be more playful with our science, right? And yeah. actually go solve some stupid problems or look at. I mean, I know some people do look at. You know coprolites or whatever and that's probably hilarious but um <laughs> i'm sure there are some other like just uh, i don't know amusing slash offensive applications of geoscience that we are exploiting. not doing yet that, for that, example for example making a seismic uh plotting algorithm which puts coffee ring stains on the paper oh yeah okay that, right. yeah that was obviously genius good on you man <laughs> but, um, <laughs> Chris, that can't be the only. Yeah, Chris, talk us out. Well, thank you for joining us this week at Undersampled Radio. This was episode thirty-one. Is that correct? Um, that it great. has been a pleasure to be here today with uh, Matt and Graham, and we hope to see you, or I hope to see you again soon, and you'll see Matt and Graham again even sooner, I'm sure. Thanks, uh, Dr. Chris Jackson, for coming on the show today. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Chris. Thank you.